Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 62. I'm Joshua Klein. And I'm Mike Optograph. And we're continuing. Uh, we are on the last chapter of David Pye's The Nature and Art of Workmanship. Yeah. Uh, walking through each chapter. Uh, if you've been hanging in there with us, going through all these chapters, you've been feeling the the cumulative uh, weight of this argument as he's building, talking about the importance of uh, workmanship of risk, as he puts it, or handwork maybe is another simpler way to put it. But he doesn't like that word, and he's mm-hmm. been uh, dispelling myths along the way and helping it to refine our thinking and showing us how important it is, uh, how workmanship of risk, this this work that's dependent on the skill of the maker's hand, how that's so important for the visual environment that we have, that not everything is put in the hand of the designer, but the workman also contributes in a very important way to what we're experiencing in artifacts, in objects around us. Right. So it's been an interesting journey to dive into that. And this is the last chapter. Uh, this is the aesthetic importance of workmanship and its future. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this this is a, a very good kind of summarizing chapter, and it it's a little open-ended. Um, mm-hmm. We... He, he's looking towards the future, right? This chapter is called The Aesthetic Importance of Workmanship and Its Future. And uh, interestingly enough, the future as it played out over the, um, you know, 50 years since Pi has written this book is turning out a little bit different than uh, what he thought. And in fact, as we mentioned back, way back at when we looked through the foreword, John Kelsey points out that Pi was... Uh, he he was very um, kind of happily surprised to see how things were turning out. This is in the '90s, mid '90s. Yeah, in the mid '90s. Yeah. So um, uh, he he was seeing this kind of resurgence of of this this handcraft, this thing that he thought was on its way out. And so um, you know maybe he came around to thinking maybe things aren't as as dire as I thought. Maybe mm-hmm. there is still a desire for this kind of thing in the world. Because in his day in 68, he saw it rapidly uh, being eclipsed. Yeah, so this preface was almost 30 years later, and you're saying, actually, it seems to be turning around. This is holding on. This thing might have some life still. Yeah. And Um, even at the end of this chapter, he talks about in 68, he was saying, you know, if if people are going to carry this on, you know, he's thinking about what it would have to be like, not only what kind of, what it would look like for, um, you know, individual artisans, but also what's the, you know, kind of surrounding uh, accommodating environment that would have to happen for this stuff to be perpetuated. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting just to think about 30 years down the road, he started to see that turning around. Um, and yeah, so I think there are a lot of interesting things to think about now in the year 2023, uh, similar sorts of questions, but obviously we're in a different place in history yeah. with different technological developments and uh, economic circumstances and those sorts of things. So uh, it's a really uh, inspiring chapter. We actually spent about half an hour before yeah. we started this episode uh, talking about all sorts of things. This is sort of perception like perception, kind of right? Per- perception, how we perceive things, and because uh, you know, Pi is talking so much about the value of 
of this diversity. And, you know, we were talking about roughness and talking about the difference between roughness and diversity. And does, is that even a legitimate distinction? And yeah, we got off on this whole thing and we said, oh, that's right. We got to start recording this podcast episode. Yeah. Uh, But that's, that's just the nature of this whole book is that it's, it's such a, it's, uh, it's a good start to a really interesting discussion that, I think all artisans can be thinking about mm-hmm. why do we make things with our hands? Why is it valuable? Why do we connect with it? And then uh, helping us to dispel muddy thinking. Um, and you'll get lost. If you really are into this, you're really thinking hard, start talking about it with someone else. If you've been reading this book, find someone else who's reading this book and start a discussion. Mm-hmm. Hours will go by and you'll, re- you'll be stimulated and interested and you'll be better off for it. So yeah. it's a, it's a good book to be wrestling with. Yeah, so Pi starts this chapter saying, um, he says, it's been suggested the importance of good workmanship in its aesthetic aspect rests on three things. So these are the three. Uh, he says, highly regulated workmanship shows us a thing done in style. So he's, he's saying style is a good thing. It's anti-sordid, anti-squalid, and contributes to our morale. So if you think about a piece of period furniture made in uh, the Queen Anne style, right, that builds a framework for how that piece of furniture is going to turn out. Um, it, it means that you look at it and you can um, make aesthetic judgments on it based on other objects in that style. You know, like the cabriole leg is too straight. It's kind of dull or it's too curved, it's kind of uh, gross, right? Um, so like in my mind, when I, I was reading this section, I'm thinking about the style, he's, he's take, talking about the style as a standard, yeah, a standard right. for um, that you're aiming for in your design. And yeah, so, as he puts it, an evident intention achieved with evident success. Right. Meaning there is a standard, there's a vision, and we can see it, and you've achieved it. You've yeah. done it in style. You, yeah. It's appropriate. It's fitting. It matches what the whole idea is. Yeah. So uh, he's he's holding that up as that's a good thing, you know, to do things in a style, and then you you can say if that has achieved its goal of fitting into that style neatly, yeah. and that that uh, improves our our lives, right, and contributes to our morale, as he says. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the second one is that um, he talks about spontaneity. Um, improvisation. Mm-hmm. He says, um, so design is, you know, in, imposing order, setting it out to be a certain way. Um, that That's only going to be fully successful when the workman has spontaneity and uh, the opportunity for improvisation, as he puts it. I love this uh, craft and music analogy. He's always bringing in this um, improvisation. You think of a, a jazz pianist being able to um, improvise and the workman has to have this this spontaneity because it brings um, individuality. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this as he's kind of reflecting again. He's summarizing, so it's um, the natural world reflected in the work of man. I think is the name of the chapter, um, and he's talking about how when we see this this contrast between order and idiosyncrasy or mm-hmm. individuality, you see a leaf. And it's of the same, it's all, yeah. it's a birch leaf and this one's a birch leaf and this one's mm-hmm. a birch leaf. But then you look close and you realize, oh, they're all a little subtly yeah. different. So they're all leaves in the birch style, yeah, but they right. all have diversity. And, yeah, and so he says, so when our work reflects that, it's reflecting the whole 
cosmos. It's reflecting the whole natural order of things. And so there's a deep resonance uh, with our work and, you know, all of creation. Yeah. And I think it's important to this, this point that he calls out, he says, you know, our natural environment shows that spontaneity just all over, you know, no two trees are alike, but they have that style, that form together. But he says, whereas in the early days of civilization, highly regulated workmanship seemed admirable because it was rare, difficult, and exceptional. So in contrast with the natural world where uh, there are no two things alike, when you could do highly regulated workmanship, making something very perfect and precise, uh, that was rare. That was interesting. But he says, now the situation's completely reversed. Mm -hmm. Now our built environment is almost entirely uh, that uh, precise workmanship of certainty kind of stuff, often what he calls uh, clinical, the Mm -hmm. the term he uses. Um, Clinical is no diversity. No diversity of surface (laughs) or or anything. You know, it's it's the, the, the doctor's office where you're in there and every surface is like that gray or that beige. And there's, fortunately for you, there's a potted plant sitting on the windowsill and you look to that, you're like gravitating to that because that's the only diversity in that whole room. Uh, So number three, he says, good workmanship, whether free or regulated, produces and exploits the quality I have called diversity. Uh, So yeah, that's what we were just saying about that. So diversity is a a value to be exploited. Like you don't want to be just stuck in the doctor's office all Mm -hmm. day long. You want different textures, different colors. You want... um, things that delight the senses. And you don't want every surface in your entire house to be a riven surface. <laughs> right. Right? Or firewood yeah. split you surface. You live in the picture. firewood pile. Like all your furniture is just riven and it's not, not planed. It's just everything's rough, 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 rough. Because that has no diversity either. That just mm-hmm. means everything's rough. Right. And I think what Pi is getting at is not like... Uh, it, it is a balancing thing. So in the past, when the world was so, the, the built environment was so rough, you really need to counteract that to to bring in some more regulation because that really is a more accurate reflection of the way the natural world is. There's mm-hmm. this um, this diversity. Um, so actually he talks about here on uh, 128, he says uh, that diversity on the small scale is particularly delightful in regulated work uh, because it has a... It, maintains a kind of pleasantly disrespectful mm. opposition mm-hmm. to the regulation and precision. Yes. So pleasantly disrespectful opposition. Yeah, I like and that. And he gives a few examples of like, you know, you, you think of this, this nice, these nice clean lines of this cabinet work and it's all nice and precise and really sleek looking. And then it has some wild grain, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's the, the disrespectful opposition to the regularity. Mm-hmm. And I, it's an interesting way to put it. I actually don't know that as it would be best put as disrespectful. <laughs> right. Uh, because it's kind of in keeping, like it, it's proper. Yeah, I would actually describe it as a counterpoint. Mm-hmm. You know, so like in music, when you have a counterpoint, music written with a counterpoint is it's, it's not like there's a dominant melody and then they're just some supporting chords. There are two melodies mm-hmm. and they run alongside and there's it, there's not one that's more dominant than the other, that there's this interplay back and forth. And I think that's kind of the idea. This is what he describes uh, in earlier on in the book as it's half the art of workmanship 
is this contrast and tension between regulation and freedom, um, you know, that you have some wild grain, but it's nice and clean lines, and you have to balance those two things. Um, and that is the counterpoint. That's the that's the the musical melodies dancing around each other. And so I think that's what he's really latching onto, saying we can't be myopic and miss one or the other of those, mm-hmm. and just play one melody line. I.e., everything is really regulated. Yeah. No diversity, or you know, everything is really wild, right. and nothing's regular. You you got to play off of that, and that's that's half the art of workmanship. Yeah. Yeah, so he says diversity imports into our man-made environment something which is akin to the natural environment we have abandoned. Um, so, as, again, that's really showing uh, the the place where he's at in his his time and place in 1968 England, seeing that um, the natural world is we're, we're moving away from it in our our regular day-to-day dwelling. Like we might go there for a holiday. <laughs> But we're mostly in the built environment. Yeah. Um, so he talks about uh, what changes can one foresee when we look ahead. We so we weigh the value of the workmanship of risk. We weigh the value of this diversity. We say, yeah, we want those things. So how can we, how can we get it? What can we do uh, to to keep pursuing it? So he talks about. Um, you know, there are certain areas where there's no way you'd want the workmanship of risk brought in to, to take over for the workmanship of certainty. He says, imagination boggles at the thought of what it might cost to build any standard family car from scratch by the workmanship of risk. Mm-hmm. How many weeks would it take to make the carburetor, for instance, or one of the headlamps? Yeah, and that totally makes sense. Like, can you imagine making a light bulb or, right. uh, you know, making a pencil? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like eye pencil. The, yeah, the exactly. Yeah. Yep. And so uh, those sorts of things, obviously we're not going to go back and say, okay, so in order to improve our standard of living, improve the, the diversity uh, of texture and um, aesthetics, we're going to now just have people hand make cars. Obviously no one could afford those cars anymore. So uh, he's saying, yeah, that's probably not going to happen. Uh, but he does say that um, it should, it, that being uh, workmanship of risk, he says it should continue simply because the workmanship of risk in its highly regulated forms can produce a range of specific aesthetic qualities, which the workmanship of certainty, always ruled by price, like I just said, will never achieve. And he says the British Museum or any other like it gives convincing evidence of that. So I think this is the second or third time in this book he's he's gone back to the British Museum to mm-hmm. say, look at what amazing beauty is possible with the workmanship of risk. Yeah, highly regulated workmanship mm-hmm. of risk. Very precise. Yeah, he said, I mean, it seems like that's the sweet spot. Mm-hmm. He wants workmanship of risk uh, operating at a high skill level. Yeah. And that just is the cream of the crop to him in his mind that it just gives this, this life of the artisan is mm-hmm. really there, but it's very, very skilled and controlled. So it is precise. It's not sloppy. That is the pinnacle for him. Yeah. Um, and it isn't, I mean, it just keeps, it kind of revolves around, I would summarize it as skill, mm-hmm. which is a word he doesn't like. Yeah, he doesn't like But I would say, I think that's, you know, really the heartbeat of this whole thing is a high level of skill exercised and put out into the world in a material artifact way. Mm-hmm. That's what this book is celebrating. 
Um, yeah. I think that would be the way that I would summarize uh, the idea or the the impulse behind what he's appreciating. Yeah, he says there's there's no danger that high regulation will die out uh, in what he calls the the preparatory branch of the workmanship of risk. He gets into that a little bit later, but that's essentially like uh, the jigging of mass manufacture is right. essentially right. all workmanship of risk. Right. You know, like the forms you build for pouring concrete foundation. That's that's workmanship of risk, and he's saying there's that's not going to die out. But he says we have we have too much regulation here. Um, he says the contemporary appetite for junk and antiques, as mm-hmm. he puts it, yep. may partly be a sign of an unsatisfied hunger for diversity and spontaneity in things of everyday use. And that exact point is my point about the rough sawn coffee table, right? You know, thing the and, and coffee, table. yeah, the pallet table and coffee shops and stuff. That's that sentence is what I'm talking about. That 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 appetite for junk and antiques, this mm-hmm. rough whatever, um, is it has this unsatisfied hunger for this diversity because yeah. we don't see it. The world that is clinical, yeah. essentially, um, aesthetically clinical, and so we're hungering for that, and so we go to pallet furniture. I mean, yeah. and I'm not talking about reclaimed. I mean, like, rough, yeah. know, really rough coffee shop kind of stuff. That's where we go because we need some extreme counterbalance. Yeah. Yeah, he says, this is where he defines clinical. He says, clinical is more or less the quality of no diversity. Yeah. He says, a little of it for a change is pleasant. Okay. But a world all clinical might be fairly oppressive. That's that's the... Uh, uh, the metaverse. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, that's not the kind of place you'd like to live. So such a world of design and workmanship without diversity, he says, as a cautionary note, is decidedly a possible one now. Um, so he says four things are gone wrong, right? When someone says, I have four things. Obser- these are the four, four things, things that are going gone. wrong. Yeah. Everyone's ears are you okay. Go, okay, what are they? <laughs> uh, he says the workmanship of certainty has not yet found out, except in certain restricted fields, how to produce diversity and exploit it. Right, we know that. Every piece of flat pack furniture is exactly identical to every piece of flat pack furniture. Uh, factories don't know how to make things that look unique. Right, you can have a list of options, and maybe you have a very large menu of options. Uh, when so you go to the dealer and you feel like you're actually customizing your car, but it's just a list of options. You know, I, diversity is more than just having a longer list of options. Mm-hmm. You can't just apply uh, the kind of diversity he's talking about. And the second one um, is that uh, essentially much of the workmanship of risk is bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's basically just sloppy. Yeah. So he calls a, it some some of it's extraordinarily bad. Yeah. So the second problem he sees is there's workmanship of risk out there, but oh my goodness, it's embarrassing. It's so bad. So that that's a problem. That's not yeah. noble. We're not excited about that. And that's what he was critiquing Ruskin for was being excited about workmanship of risk, as Pi puts it, uh, even though it's bad. And actually, be, maybe kind of because it's bad. Right. I mean, he's saying this is a weird way to, to yeah. you don't want to hold up bad workmanship. Right. Um, so he's saying it's so it's, uh, bad workmanship, workmanship of risk, the existence of that, that's not good. We got to fix that. Yeah. Yeah. So three and four are quite similar in that, um, you know, he's saying like for cabinet makers, he talks about three, 
their craft is dying out because they're doing a lot with workmanship of risk, but people can't really afford it. Yeah, so uh, it's a money thing. Right. So you, there is such a thing as high regulated workmanship of risk, mm-hmm. but you put $3 signs behind it. Right, yeah, it's or more, right. uber expensive. Yep. So uh, that, as he said in this day, that he sees it dying out. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, it hasn't yet done that, or we wouldn't be, you know, talking to you on this podcast right now. Um, so, yeah, I think it's interesting because he basically says, he says, okay, the the two, three, and four, those questions are relatively easy to to deal with or to think about. Um, but the the first of them, mm-hmm. the workmanship of certainty, not being able to provide diversity, <clears throat> is something yeah. that he's like, I don't know how that could yeah, ever be fixed. There's no known answer to that. So here's my question. In 2023, when we're all, everything's a buzz, you know, everyone's talking about artificial intelligence and these mm-hmm. randomly generated mm-hmm. images, right? you know, where you have, um, this person does not exist.com and you have faces created that don't actually exist, mm-hmm. people, and it looks like a picture, you know? Um, when that kind of thing is going on, I wonder if that actually would deal with number one. So you have workmanship of certainty, mm-hmm. i.e. it's not dependent on the artisans, you know, typing or controlling or designing, but there's now a piece of software that's, you know, that's not random, but it's generating information that then would create a, a seemingly to us random surface texture at a mm-hmm. micro scale if that could be applied to production, it seems like that mm-hmm. would deal with number one. Yeah. His and, issue, his concern <clears throat> that uh, we have diversity, and but the problem is workmanship of certainty can't do it. Right. Well, I think the thing with what Pi's arguing is that there's intentionality behind that diversity. Like if you just allowed AI to randomly generate surfaces, you'd have like a surface of razor blades sometimes or you'd have a surface of needles or like broken glass. You'd have surfaces that are both appealing and then not appealing because it doesn't know the difference. It just recognizes that what you're looking for is diversity. And Pi talks a lot about, you know, there is some, uh, you know, in the equivocality chapter, he talks about certain surfaces which are basically, in his words, like abhorrent almost. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he does not like them. And so... The thing with, as we've done with our little experiments with AI and asking it to generate an image of a a woodworker at his bench uh, in in the style of like the Dutch masters or something, Mm -hmm. it generates an image that you look at and at first glance, it's got things right. The color's right, the lighting, the bench against the wall, like all those paintings were, the guy standing there. And then you realize he has too many fingers or you realize that tool he's using isn't actually isn't a, a real tool. tool. It's, it's a, a block-like looking thing with a handle that doesn't make any real sense. Yeah. Because But uh, so the thing about that though is that's, you know, as of this recording in 2023. Yeah. So I'm thinking about, you know, applying that kind of technology to say, you know, scanning uh, so like for example, uh, this person does not exist.com. Mm-hmm. They all look like people. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm sure there are some mistakes that happen, but Click, 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 and it's just people, 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 because it's pulling from this huge database of uh, photographs. Mm -hmm. So it does actually make sense. So I'm just thinking about, you know, the potential of AI scanning surfaces, 
and make having a database of information and supplying that and saying, okay, now within this field of data, can we supply a random surface? Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, I'm not advocating for that. Right. And I think there's something deeper going on. But I, I think it's an interesting question because Pi, I'm not so sure actually that he actually does care about intentionality behind it because he's so focused on the aesthetic impact. Mm-hmm. For him, like the, the, the why and the deeper background question seems to be averted often. He's, mm-hmm. kind, he's trying to say, ah, oh, we just want this visual impact. Like it's almost worth faking it. Is that what you mean? I, I'm, I yeah. mean, for, I mean for Pi. Yeah, theoretically, if you run with this argument, I wonder if Pi would say, "Oh yeah, if AI could do it, that'd be great. Right. That'd solve yeah. it. Then we wouldn't have to. Then we would no longer need workmanship of risk." I don't know. I don't yeah. know what he if he would actually roll with that. But I think his argument kind of does yeah. because the reason he's saying the fundamental reason we should hang on to the workmanship of risk is because the workmanship of certainty can't produce this aesthetic right. impact. So thus extrapolate then, if it could, if it then could. we'd be all good. <laughs> I, and I'm I, afraid that he I, would say, well, yeah, okay, that's good. Yeah, but I don't I don't know, because I, I think that that's the danger of pursuing this as, as uh, he's trying to be kind of rigorously scientific yeah. in his pursuit. And so when you go rigorously scientific, you it's can only end. go so far. Yeah. yeah. You you can't get into questions of satisfaction, questions of why. Of yeah, the why. You can't answer why with a scientific pursuit. Right. You can answer how, and maybe you can you can guess, you know, like what or um, extrapolate out into the future by taking data, putting it together, and saying, well, I predict this result. That's mm-hmm. that's what science can get you. It doesn't say why, and it doesn't give you any sense of uh, you know, bringing in uh, humanity into the equation to say, why do we like this? Yeah, and or why is it dangerous for our generation? Yeah, or because he says kinds, that, yeah, but that he can't of, answer it scientifically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we are actually, this is the kind of stuff we were talking about before we started recording. And I think we, we intend to have a follow-up final episode that we will talk about where we think pi falls short. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is this is the kind of thing I think... There isn't so much of the the why is not talked about at all. It's sort right. of this aesthetic focus sort of ends the discussion there. Mm-hmm. So interesting stuff. <clears throat> it sure is. He does he does say on page one thirty. He says it is very probable that if diversity were appreciated as much as economy, synthetic or processed materials would be made with an equally rich inherent diversification. Mm-hmm. So. There, that that kind of yeah. sounds like his answer. That's what that I'm question. saying. Yeah, so I love this that he's you know he's talking about um, diversity and how much he's emphasizing it. If you've been listening to this whole series, you're like, okay, doesn't he have any other points to talk about? <laughs> right. uh, not really, actually. <clears throat> right. Uh, and he says, uh, perhaps I think too much of diversity. <laughs> yeah, he does say that. But it is high time somebody spoke <laughs> up for it. He's like the Lorax of diversity. <laughs> That's great. He's the Lorax of diversity. Yeah. So David Pye is saying, I am on the stump. I'm saying, I am the Lorax, and I speak for diversity of texture. <laughs> that's great. I mean, that's So if you read his book as that, yep. it really makes a lot more sense that way. Um, so he says the second problem is uh, the bad workmanship 
uh, in assembly and finishing off, right? So we see that, and you you can, like, if you've ever bought a really lousy car, like, say, an American car from the 1970s, mm. when they're new, you know, those things, they, they're burning oil, you know, your first fill-up, you have to add a quart of oil, and they're just not well-made because uh, they were pulling out of precision in the name of economy, and so you get a clunker, and it's just not well put together. He says, um, he says this is the second thing is that the force of the long traditions of the workmanship of risk is now very weak in many trades. So he's saying like these trades have backed off of their practices, and and probably automobile manufacture isn't the best example because that's not a it's not an ancient trade. But he's saying a lot of these trades have walked back from the the focus on the skill and keeping the quality up mm-hmm. in the in the name of economics. Uh, right. So, um, so they're shifting over to <clears throat> prefabricated components, putting right. things together. You know, people aren't building windows; they're buying window units that you fasten yep. to the wall. And so there's this this move in the building trades, all sorts of trades that it's moving toward prefabricated component installation i've seen houses go up where you know one day you drive by and it's just uh it's just like the bare the stick frame and covered in osb and tyvek and the next day the whole front of the house is brick you're like how'd they do that i mean it's it's a brick panel right the whole wall (laughs) yeah and together uh, it's it's amazing but he's he's saying there's a problem here because um like designers are mandating certain things for this that now the the construction crew can't pull off. They can't, mm. they don't have the skill to do a simple miter joint, he says. So we've got to, if we're going to do this, we've got to stop designing with this kind of stuff in mind that the average worker can't pull off. Because what we're doing is we're making, we're wrecking the beauty of our environment. Everything's sloppy now. Right. So he says, hmm. um, <clears throat> It is necessary for the architect to understand very clearly the limitations of the workmanship which the price of the building will allow. So uh, you've got to understand if you're designing these things that you have to simplify. If you're designing around economics and a very skilled or very limited skill in the, the workers, you have to alter the design. You have to draw it back or else you're just going to get subpar finish. You're going to get gaps in your trim. You're yep. going to get uh, things that, you know, the doors don't line up, the windows, you know, bind. You, you need to keep in mind where we are now. He says, if you're a designer, you have to change the way you design to allow for this kind of shortcoming or you'll just have subpar um, results. Yeah, this is the vicious cycle, man. Yeah, you know? I know. You de-skill and then, and then so you, you expect you have nice to, results. You have to design... Uh, prefabricated components so that de-skilled people can put them in so that the next person who comes in doesn't ever even ever even heard of those skills and it's just it just perpetuates this um sort of de-skilling uh downward spiral yeah not good it's kind of like you know everyone's either seen been in a house with or seen like pictures of like the the bathroom where the cabinet door opens and hits the front of the toilet (laughs) or you know something's just not right because it's all these prefab, you know, your your sink unit, your toilet unit, your shower unit in this this room that was rough framed by one group of people, and then the sheetrock was thrown up by another group of people, and then the plumber's got to come in and do his stuff, 
and they're all just on the clock. They're working fast. So then you shove in these Home Depot components and stuff doesn't line up, right? Yeah. The, the mirror's off center above the vanity and the lights are kind of weird, but that's just what is expected today. That's new home construction. Hmm. Uh, and it's, he's, he's saying, well, if we're going to, if we're going to go down this road, we better start changing the way we design things. Yeah. So, uh, he talks about, uh, moving forward, how to move forward that there, we have these problems, this, these third and fourth problems of money, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, those are problems uh, that if we're going to have highly regulated work, it's going to cost a lot of money. Um, but it would be a great loss if workmanship of risk didn't continue, he says. Mm-hmm. Um, so he says workmanship of risk can be applied to two uh, different purposes. One is preparatory and the other is uh, productive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the preparatory branch um, is, uh, it says it's already the most important of the two uh, economically. Um, and we'd starve pretty quickly. And so this is this whole idea of, uh, as you were talking about, making the forms and that kind of yeah. thing. Um, and I, the way he puts it, I think it's interesting because he's talking about workmanship of risk and he's picking up on this salt thing. He's done this a few times. He says, um, the workmanship of risk may never again provide our bread. Mm. It may yet provide our salt. Mm-hmm. So he's saying, you know, our bread labor, our, the, our sustenance, and this is how we earn our paycheck by workmanship through the workmanship of risk. That's kind of gone, right? But what it can do, what workmanship can do, is give us the salt and pepper. Yep. It can it's give flavor. us the seasoning and the the flavor in our in our life. Yep. And so that's a, I think an interesting connection to this preparatory branch that it's um, waning, but the value then uh, has to move forward into the next generation in a different way. Yeah, he says that this branch is um, he's talking about, he says, in the course of the next two or four generations, it may well have become economically negligible as a source of useful products. Mm-hmm. And again, we hope to say that, maybe he's wrong about that, um, that there are people who can still make a decent living and on the workmanship of risk, and that there are people who still appreciate it. In the mm-hmm. world, you know. Well, and coming up a little bit later on, he's been talking about the conditions that would have to be in place right. for that to even be possible. Yeah. yeah, I mean, some of it reminds me of um, what Schumacher um, talked about in his book, um, Small is Beautiful, about uh, appropriate technology. And maybe it's better for us to consider letting, you know, 20, 20 men harvest a field, giving 20 men uh vocation and work rather than buying one harvester and letting the machine do it. You know, maybe that's, mm-hmm. these are things that we should ask, especially if we're looking to questions of sustainability, but that's not what we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the salt and pepper, he says the crafts, this is a, a term he doesn't, I don't think he uses too often in this book. Uh, he calls it a sadly tarnished name. He says it may be uh, perhaps applied to the part of the productive workmanship of risk whose justification is aesthetic, not economic. So now he's he's kind of yielding that ground now. Yeah. He's saying craft work, handwork we might call it, is for aesthetic ends and not economic ends necessarily. He's saying we do this because it's beautiful and it's pleasing mm-hmm. and not necessarily to make a bunch of money at it. So he's saying this is the ground that we're yielding. It's not the way forward for mass production. No, not at all. He says the crafts ought to 
provide the salt and the pepper to make the visible environment more palatable, when nearly all of it will have been made by the workmanship of certainty. I love that palatable. Yeah, like we can we can tolerate <laughs> can life here now. Digest such a <laughs> because things are beautiful. And so he says, uh, you know, let us have nothing to do with the idea that the crafts uh, are some sort of protest against the workmanship of certainty. That's mm-hmm. paranoia. He <clears throat> says. Uh, he says the crafts should be a complement to industry. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's his whole vision is that it's not about saying um, one or the other. He's really trying to get us. It's this whole this this balancing art thing that he's trying to play out. So within the work itself that the artisan at the bench is, you know, carrying on, that same sort of thing at a broader societal level he wants to see as well that uh, the the craft and the industry side that they're complementing each other that mm-hmm. there's a salt and pepper at a societal level yeah. to the bread of right. industry and the other thing he says here the first part of that sentence he says uh, let's not have anything to do with the idea that that the crafts are in some way superior to the workmanship of certainty right. I feel like that is just like the defeat for everyone who says, oh, pie is just all against the people who work with machines or whatever. Like, he clearly is not. That is not what he's saying. This is not a superior way of working in any way. And he says, let's have nothing to do with that idea here. Right. So I think that's important to call out. Um, pie has been scapegoated for that, and that's not his argument. Right. Um, <clears throat> so he talks about some examples of of handcrafts that uh, he says, um, like, for example, the best possible design is seldom the one which is quickest to make. And so he's saying, like, what kind of crafts are, like, um, economically possible? Like, what can you make fast? And he says, well, there's pottery, some hand, hand loom weaving, some jewelry can produce be produced pretty fast and pretty pretty quick economically, right? So maybe that's a sustainable direction forward. Uh, he says, moreover, in pottery at least, industry offers no serious competition. So you don't have to keep up with the machines so much with pottery, he's saying um, at that point. And so uh, it's an interesting thing. He's saying, okay, so what's what's viable here? What can we make fast and cheap by hand so it's beautiful and and thus that can become like a uh, a way to perpetuate the workmanship of risk out into the future. Mm-hmm. I mean, these these trades, he describes them as um, the few trades, that there are only a few like that. So he says, um, in, except those in the rest of the built environment, he says, in all but uh, these very few trades, exceedingly high quality... Mm-hmm is the last remaining ground yep. on which the crafts can now compete. Yeah. So that's the last leg that workmanship of risk has to stand on. Yeah. In the big picture is really high quality. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I think a lot of the the craft washing stuff that comes out where people are, you know, Amazon handmade or whatever yeah. that is, you know, there there's always this claiming to quality yeah. people it's are saying oh quality. yeah that's what i want handmade and so if you're if you're outfitting your 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 fourth home on the coast of maine or whatever like you're you have your summer residence on some private island and you don't want to just get nice furniture you're going to go even further you're going to s- source some local maker somewhere someone who 
is like renowned for the beauty of their furniture, you're going to go for that because that is the height of quality. quality. Yeah, quality is the, the thing that uh, the workmanship of risk can hang on to, can stand on. Yeah, and so he says, there must be sufficient demand for the very best quality at any price. Right. So this is the upper echelon, he's saying. This is now uh, the, the, the 1% are the ones who will um, pull this forward in that theoretical example. Mm-hmm. Um, so he talks about how uh, in some ways there, there's always been this, um, this kind of economy for the, the upper echelon to pursue this quality at any price. He talks about musical instruments, yachts, uh, guns, jewelry, tailoring, things of silver are still in that same place. These are places where if you want the best, it's handmade, mm-hmm. right? So he's got, that's sort of the um, the consumer side of it. The other side of it is as, a, as an artisan yourself, you know, if you want to take on these things, um, you know, there's the what's possible for me to to achieve kind of question. Um, so he's talking about the amateur, the, the true yes. amateur, as he later describes it. Uh, and this word amateur is, you know, doing something for the love of it, not for the money. And uh, he's saying this is, of course, the classic like hobbyist thing, mm-hmm. uh, the amateur woodworker. Uh, the argument for that and how valuable that is, this is what Pi is kind of talking about, that in this economic situation, that workmanship of risk is not economically viable on the big scale, then therefore it's going to be handed to amateurs. And amateurs, i.e. hobbyists, weekend warriors, however you want to describe it, uh, this is going to be their domain that they're going to really be able to uh, run with. Uh, He talks about basically like a, a self-employed person is becomes a manager, mm-hmm. uh, sales manager, works manager, dispatch manager, buyer, accountant, secretary, all these you gotta things. You got to convince everyone that your stuff's worth buying. Yeah. Running a business is not easy. I'm not sure how many of you listeners are um, self-employed if you're entrepreneurs, but oh my goodness, there are three of us at Mortis and Tenon, and it is a massive amount of work. Yeah. So I think you know, we're blessed to be able to keep this thing going and we figured out a schedule. But what he's highlighting here is you, you know, being a passionate and skilled woodworker is not enough mm-hmm. to be able to be a successful, uh, an economically successful maker. There's right. way more that goes into the business side of things than just these skills. So the amateur domain is really what he sees is going to be super important to um, to highlight. Yeah, and I think he makes a really compelling case here because uh, Joshua, like you said, most of our most of our readers are what we would call amateurs. They're hobbyists, right? Like like we are. You know, we're we are. hobbyist woodworkers. Yes. Yep. And he's saying those are the ones who are carrying the torch. Mm-hmm. Those are. He says no one will find the patience to become a proficient workman of this sort unless he has a lively and continual longing to do it. And given that, ways of learning the job will be found. So if someone is doing this professionally, they will figure out a way to do it as fast as possible yep. without, um, you, you'll start to do away with some of those, the nice, the finer details in order to get it out the door. Or mechanize or yep. sub it out or whatever. There are different ways that you could approach economizing the work. But as I've said before, if there's no shirt to lose, yeah. then there's no risk. Yeah. You, you can you take that extra time to add that detail or to become proficient in that that area that you know carving yeah. or 
banding or whatever it is that you just want to do it because it's awesome. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. And he says, that's, that's what we need. Amateurs have long carried the torch. He talks about um, part-time seamen are making ocean voyages and small craft, which any professional seaman of the days of sail would have highly respected. He says, astronomy, like William Herschel and Isaac Newton, they were amateurs. Mm -hmm. They were not professionals in their field, but An they amateur drove is not it. unskilled. That's what's really, yeah. really important. Amateur does not mean unskilled. Yeah. It means someone who's doing it for the love of it, not for the economics of it. Now, of course, it'd be great if you could have your love be economically viable. Right. That's great. But the, the focus is, this is someone who's not saying, I'm just a businessman trying to invent light bulbs. I'm right. just a businessman trying to, you know, do, you know, uh, you know, marketing. I'm just, but it's someone who's passionate about what they're doing. That's the particular thing he's highlighting. And those are the kinds of people that serious progress has been made and serious innovation and high levels of skill have come out. So yep. he's just trying to say, don't poo-poo the amateur. Yeah. Yeah. He says it's high time we separated the idea of the true amateur, that is to say the part-time professional, from the idea of do it yourself yep. at its worst end and all that is amateurish. Yeah, right. So that should not be an adjective anymore. Like the the DIY stuff is separate from the one doing the work for the love of the work and for the beauty of the work and for the the satisfaction and the skill. He's saying separate those categories. Yep. It's exactly. not it's not fair to clump them together. Yeah, and I mean he talks about people mix uh, conflate those categories because they think if someone pays you to do it, mm -hmm. then therefore you know how to do you're, it. Right. But if you're not getting paid to do it, then therefore you don't really you're know. An and he's saying that's that's dumb. That doesn't yeah. make any sense. Um I think it is interesting that he says that, you know, if someone has a, a lively and a continual longing to learn these things, they'll find a way, right? Mm. And he gives four examples, four different sources of wisdom for this kind of thing. He says there are books, there are examples of the work itself, mm. you know, in our case, antiques. Uh, there are the workmen themselves, people who are alive doing it today, and then practice. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, those are the things we've been pumping for a long time. Books, examples of work, uh, the people who are doing it today and practice, really actually rolling up your sleeves and getting to it. And that's the heart of the true amateur. It's, uh, as he says, it's to have one's heart in the job yep. and to insist on the extreme of professionalism, meaning uh, to do work as perfectly as possible, you know, saying, I have my heart in it, I wanna do a really good job, what are appropriate tolerances, what's the design, and then to nail it, yeah. because you love it. Yeah, That's the true amateur. That's, yeah. that's uh, he says, the, uh, um, the artist is to do his best, right? That's the idea, you wanna do your best. And that looks different for different uh, trades and different tolerances and different aesthetic uh, impacts, but the the artisan ought to be striving to do the best that is possible hmm. with you know the skill level you have, um, and that's what he sees the future of of the crafts being. What he saw in '68, yeah, and it seems to me to still be the path yeah. forward. And he says encouragingly, he says, "I doubt whether there is anything which a determined part-time professional could not attain to." He says, "Except speed." And even that comes in time. Yeah, exactly. So speed comes from 
uh, gaining these skills and then just practicing. You get faster. That's yep. just the natural uh, way it goes. That's such a weird sentence. I read that. And he's like, there's nothing except speed that you can't get, and except you can't get. And you'll get that. <laughs> yeah. It is funny. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, you can't learn speed from a book. Yeah. Or from observing things, but you you just learn speed from practice. Yeah, yeah, right. But practice is one of his. That's number four. So I don't know. It's kind of. <laughs> if I was his editor, I'd be. Like, I'd say, bro, mm, that, let's that's cut not that. an exception. Let's cut then. that. Yeah, the accept <laughs> thing. So he says there are some pitfalls to be thinking about with this. Okay, we have this true amateur. We have this artist. You know, mm-hmm. who's someone who's really doing it for the love of it. And he says, okay. There are some pitfalls with this way of thinking about it. And we're ready. I mean, you've, if you're listening and you're picturing this hobbyist professional thing and you've sensed some tension or you've, you've known about some back and forth about these kinds of perspectives, you all of a sudden are feeling, well, that whole true amateur, I'm really the one who can invest time to do it right, right. and I'm not a slave to the uh, bottom line. Yeah, and, I don't oh, care about economic factors. Yeah, so. he says, okay, there are some pitfalls. Yeah. Uh, first of all, you can have this this attitude of uh, this sturdy independence. Mm-hmm. I don't need anyone else. <clears throat> I'm self-sufficient. And the second thing that comes along with it is this snobby, holier-than-thou attitude, mm-hmm. which, of course, we all have uh, known about. And so when people are holding up the, the value of the amateur who can do it right and is mm-hmm. not a, a, you know a, a slave to the bottom line that kind of thing they all of a sudden it starts smelling like snobby yes yeah, uh, holier than thou stuff and so he's saying be careful with that you know I you know, I he says we all have can feel sympathy with that kind of way of thinking so mm-hmm. watch out because that's not good yeah he says for example like we who practice the fine crafts are not as other craftsmen are. <laughs> He's like, uh, that's very pharisaical kind of perspective. He says, this is, this is ridiculous nonsense, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, <clears throat> he says, and this is, this is a, a valuable point. The workmanship of risk was in many ways better in the old days than it is now. There's no sense in pretending otherwise. Mm-hmm. And we see that just in observation. We see that in looking at antiques. We know these things were done with tremendous skill and and very fast. Um, and they're very beautiful and they're very enduring. Like they meet all these things. And you'd be hard pressed to find someone today who with the same tools could make that same piece of furniture in even three times the time it took originally, mm-hmm. right? So. Yeah, and that's not to say there aren't any people. Right. It's saying there are too few people. Yes, there are the, too the few. The people you have in mind right now, like, yeah, but what about so-and-so? Yeah. 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 We want more of them. Yeah. We, we want there, more there were like several that. of those in every little village before. <laughs> yeah, they should be all over the place. And so he, but it's, it's great, though, because he's saying let's, we don't need to you know, hide the fact that, yeah, in the past, people were really skilled and were doing high mm-hmm. levels of work. And he says, but nostalgia is always in wait for us. So watch out for this kind of thing. Uh, yeah. We don't want to mix this up and say uh, we're only going to be looking back. Um, he says we must think of the future more than the past. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a really interesting way to put it, and I'm not sure that I would word it like that, more than the past, mm-hmm. um, because we learn from the past for the future. Right. So how much time is spent gazing into the future and gazing at the past? You know, I don't know how you would slice that. But he's not arguing for a complete 
um, untethering from the past. Forget the past. Just think about the future. Right. No, no, no. You can't do that, actually. But he's also saying, watch out for nostalgia. Watch out for being so focused on the past that we don't have any you know, forethought into our generation and the next generation and what is the place of this and how is it going to fit. If we just say, well, it's not like it used to be. Yeah, well... Thanks a lot. That's yeah, a profound that observation. <laughs> what are we going to do then? Yeah. Um, and so he says, some trades which are dead economically are all alive in human terms mm. and still have much to show the world. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah. That's what M&T is all about. Yeah. I would say, yeah, that is, <laughs> you know, what do you find more compelling? Do you, If you've been to like an open air living history museum or you know, some of those those places, those open air museums in Europe that are unbelievable. You go there and you see the people doing, practicing these trades, you know, like wheel making or uh, just doing these skills, you know, seeing, going to uh, upstate New York and seeing someone in, in the museum setting building, you know, entirely by hand an Adirondack guideboat. And your your mind is blown. You're like, I mean, that is way more interesting to me than a thousand, you know, uh, Kevlar canoes being put out by machines. Mm-hmm. Like you want to go and learn. You want to see that. There is so much more to offer, even if the market for those hand-built boats is very small to non-existent. Mm. But the value that of of the the education, the value, the, the aesthetic value of seeing that done, it just it it brings your imagination to life. You're you're just you walk away just shaking your head in awe and you want to hold on to that. You know, that awe is really a valuable thing to have. It's mm-hmm. not something you can put a price tag on. Um, so he, he begins the transition here at the very end of the book. Uh, to He talks about there must be an alliance between uh, the craftsmen and the designers, uh, which is interesting that he says craftsmen. He doesn't like that word, but mm, yeah. <clears throat> the, the workmen mm-hmm. uh, is what he means. That between the craftsmen and the designers, um, and that there's this collaborative thing that must happen. Um, and, you know, he so- talks about um, a designer is one sort of artist mm-hmm. and a workman is another. That There's true artistry in designing, just like there's true artistry in um, carrying out the design, creating, making, shaping the thing. And both of them need to be working together. He says, instrumentalists, musicians, do not feel any sense of inferiority because they're not composers. Right. Right? Yeah. So he's saying same thing in the crafts. Just because, yeah. uh, you know, some, and I would assume a composer does not feel a sense of inferiority to the musicians. Right. You got to have those things. Yeah. You got to have people writing music and people playing music. And you got to have people designing beautiful things. And you got to have people making beautiful mm-hmm. things. There's this, uh, this uh, relationship that has to happen, this alliance um, that isn't, that really, this, uh, that has to happen, that has to exist in order for the crafts to be uh, strong going forward. Yeah, I think he's trying also there to shrug off uh, the argument of Ruskin where he was saying, like, basically everyone, every craftsman needs yep. to have the freedom of design. He says the it's an illusion. Right. Not all craftsmen are born de- designers. In fact, there are no born designers. Right. He's saying that... That's its own skill, its yeah, own art. So to say that you're not free unless you are the designer and the maker... He's saying, no, that's just not true. Right. So let's let's shrug this off. Let's recognize that not everyone is going to design and make. Some people, there are designers, there are craftsmen, as he used here. Um, 
But to say that um, it's enslaving to have to work to someone else's design is just not true. Because I like looking back, you think of his idea of style is a similar one to design. You know, he but he's holding that up as a good thing. Style is good. Working to a style is good. Working to a design, there's it's also good. Mm-hmm. You know, where Ruskin would say, well, no, working to a design is bad if it's not your own. Mm-hmm. And so Pi's kind of saying, eh, no, not quite. There are different categories here that we need to consider. Right. Um, go ahead. So he talks about the um, the the great danger. Uh, of the the spurious craftsman. Um, so I, I think what he really is trying, I mean, you can tell he does not like uh, sloppy stuff done in the name of handcraft. Right. Um, he does not like that at all. And so he says, uh, one of the great dangers is that there will be a sort of travesty of rough workmanship. Mm-hmm. Uh, rough for the sake of roughness. Right. Instead of rough for the sake of speed. So rough is fine if it's for economic you know like speed mm-hmm. reasons but uh, if we're going to turn uh, roughness into this sort of travesty this caricature of diversity we're going to just have it be really wild looking for the sake of mm-hmm. wildness he's saying that's a travesty that's a danger that's a misstep and that's what ruskin was doing with it we don't want to have anything to do with that um i think it's a an interesting, you know, there, to me, that's like a can of worms. I still, you know, he's saying roughness for the sake of roughness is not good. But he is saying that diversity for the uh-huh. sake of diversity is good. Is good. Yeah. So what is... So if roughness is, as he defined it earlier on, as it's an evident disparity between the design and the actual thing, an evident disparity, well... You know, okay, so it's more extreme, but yeah. diversity is evident, obviously. Yeah. You can see that it has these subtle variations. Yeah. So it really seems to be like a scale kind of thing. Yeah, what's or the degree the, that's the, allowable before it becomes, in his mind, like negatively rough? Right. So I would say it's tolerances. Mm-hmm. Every trade has tolerances. So it's an interesting thing, but he's saying we don't want things travestied. So I think, you know, it's like um, he talked about before, he talked about the um, the handmade pot. Well, of course it leaks. It's handmade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's a travesty. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. And so uh, this this whole thing, it, he says, I, I want to back up for a minute because it's interesting. He's talking about why things were built um, beautifully and and how that is valuable to look at, like how things of the past were built. He says, um, people are beginning to believe you cannot make even toothpicks without 10,000 pounds of capital, right? Like mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're falling for the lie that you, you just can't make stuff anymore without, you know, having, without it being workmanship of certainty. Mm-hmm. You can't, you, you just can't do that anymore. He says, we forget the prodigies one man and a kit of tools can do if he likes the work enough. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a, that's kind of a fun sentence, um, it, it kind of the sort of thing you might post over the door in your workshop, like the prodigies of one man with a kit of tools, if he likes the work enough. And that is, again, getting back to the value of the amateur, the person who loves the work can do anything, can be a a William Herschel kind of thing, you know, of woodworking. Mm -hmm. Um, So he's, he's at the end of the book here. He's wrapping up the last chapter at the end of the book. Uh, He says, 
just in summary, free workmanship is one of the main sources of diversity. Yep. Uh, to achieve diversity in all its possible manifestations is the chief reason for continuing the workmanship of risk as a productive undertaking. In other words, for per- perpetuating craftsmanship. So. And then he says, and all other reasons are subsidiary to that one. Right. Yeah. All other reasons for continuing the crafts are subsidiary to diversity. Yeah. Visual aesthetic variation. And I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say if you have this book and you, you, you haven't listened through the whole series, but for some bizarre reason you jumped to this one and you just want to know what's the summary of this book, I would say read that paragraph, those few sentences. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, 139, he's closing it up. He's saying free workmanship, the reason it's important, a workmanship of risk, the reason it's important is because it has this unique aesthetic quality of diversity that you can't get anywhere else, and that's the main reason it's so valuable. Yep. Yeah. That's that's the book. That's pie in a nutshell right there. And, I mean, I think it's a strong emphasis, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, pie the Lorax for mm-hmm. uh, diversity is calling out. He's, you know, he's speaking up for it because no one else is speaking up for it. And I think it's good. Uh, and I and for me, it just leaves me hanging because there are so many different things where he's talking about the great danger and yeah. something is dangerous for our generation. And yeah. it, there's a lot of this um, sense of urgency and this, these, this moral undertone that he condemns in Ruskin. But when it emerges in, in his own writing, it's I think it's interesting because... I just keep asking the why question. Yeah. Okay, we know that this is important, but why is diversity important mm-hmm. for people? And it's therefore, in his words, dangerous if we don't have this visual uh, uh, quality right. to our environment. Uh, you know, you want to say why? Yeah, why? What do you What's mean behind by that? that? Yeah. And so, like we were saying, you know, Pi is is being uh, rigidly scientific, or he's trying to be. You know, he, as you said, it, it creeps out away from that from time to time. But he's defined terms well. He's been clear in his arguments and his articulations. But honestly, you can't get away from the why questions, and that sort of exploration can't answer them. Mm-hmm. You have to go beyond scientific examination to answer the whys. Yeah. I feel like it's, you know, as you said earlier about science, the, lim- the limits of it, it can say that mm-hmm. something is a way. Yeah. And that's great. And he's done a great job saying that this is really important. Mm-hmm. And the next piece of this thought process has to be, okay, so why, so why? is it important yep. that humans uh, see these kinds of things? And I think, you know, parts of it might be connection to the natural order. He does talk about that. But he's just stating that this work mirrors the natural order. Mm-hmm. So then you say, well, why is that important? Yeah. I don't, you know, it's like, um, and he's observed, he observes that, you know, the, um, the sailor is sick of staring at the sea and wants to go down below the deck to have regularity and you need that balance or people don't feel settled. And I want to say, why? Why, <laughs> why yeah. do people Why have... is it that that is the case? <laughs> um, so... So this is, you know, this has been a great book with so much food for thought, and it leaves you with more food for thought yeah. and more, more fruitful discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, our next episode is going to be some more 
uh, we're going to talk about where we feel like this falls short and yeah. kind of building off of what the last couple minutes here have been. Uh, I'm sure it will be a good and interesting discussion like the rest of this has been. Uh, so you've all made it through to the end. Congratulations. You all deserve a pat on the back uh, and bonus <laughs> points, a gold star for making it through. Um, but this book is one that's worth diving into. So I hope that you've uh, come along for the whole journey. And uh, again, thank you for listening to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. If you haven't already, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any comments or questions, just leave them below. And please leave us a review. Uh, we really like to get those, especially if they're good ones. Um, <laughs> or funny. Or funny. Yeah, we like funny ones. What was the one sure. about the squirrel running up the shirt? Yeah, that's a funny one. That was my favorite one. That's so good. It's so it was like this podcast is so good. It's like a squirrel running up your shirt and yeah. Like, like, I don't even know what that means. That's not a metaphor I would have come up with, but I understand what it means. It's great. Uh, yeah. So thank you very much. We appreciate it. <laughs>